Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies and is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. In this episode of America's 360, we're going to explore issues that are likely to be priorities among the countries of the Western Hemisphere as the U.S. undertakes the transition from a Trump administration to a Biden administration. It's a broad agenda ranging from migration to climate cooperation to COVID-19 support and vaccine distribution. But before we dig into that topic with our special guest, we want to turn to Cindy Arnson, the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program, to ask her about some breaking news in terms of when we're recording. Just this past weekend, Venezuela held elections. And so, Cindy, if you wouldn't mind, tell us what happened. Venezuela held elections for a new national assembly this uh, past Sunday on December 6th, and it resulted, no surprise, in the governing party winning 67% of the seats, a supermajority, in an election when only about 31%, a very low percentage of the electorate by Venezuelan terms, showed up to participate. And the elections are, are really important for a couple of reasons. One is that since 2015, the assembly has been controlled by the Venezuelan opposition. And it is the body from which the interim president, Juan Guaido, emerged. So when this new national, when, when the new national assembly takes over on January 5th, um, there will be no longer any body within Venezuela um, that the opposition controls, even though the government never allowed it to function. And the constitutional basis for Guaido's interim presidency um, will also uh, be really, um, really in question. And we have to just remember that these were elections that took place under the most adverse conditions. Um, the government of, of Nicolas Maduro has done everything in its power over the last five years um, to tail uh, the powers of the assembly to prevent it from governing, um, going as far as to hold elections for an alternative assembly and prohibiting the major opposition candidates uh, from running in elections and then uh, going ahead and absolutely substituting the, the leadership of the main opposition parties with people that were more uh, palatable to the regime. So there were, were no questions for free and fair elections, but nonetheless, this is a real, a real turning point um, in Venezuela's domestic politics. Thanks, Cindy. And, and certainly one of the issues that we'll be discussing as the new administration begins to survey the landscape. So as I mentioned, uh, Dan Restrepo was with us, and we're lucky to have him with us for two episodes. This week's episode is the first half of a two-part discussion. Dan is a former senior director for the Americas at the National Security Council under President Obama. He continues to advise Democrats on developments in the Western Hemisphere. And Dan is also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. You're going to hear from him in just a minute. But first, let me bring back the roundtable. Joining us, as always, Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hey there, John. Hey, Benjamin. Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Hey, Ricardo. You just met Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson, and also, last but not least, is Mexico Institute Director and Vice President for New Initiatives, Duncan Wood. Hi, Duncan. Hey, John. How you doing? 
And as uh, as we previewed, our special guest, Dan Restrepo, joins us. Uh, and before we dive into the full roundtable, Ricardo has a few questions to, to tee things off. So, Ricardo, take it away. Sure. Thanks very much, John. So, Dan, you and I both worked with Vice President, then Vice President Biden, while he was uh, uh, focused on the Americas during President Obama's administration. We know how much he cares about the region. We also know that traditionally the Americas are a not a first-tier issue for an incoming administration, even the full range of issues that, that most governments have to, most administrations have to deal with around the world and right away. But this time, between COVID and the uh, economic impact on Mexico of uh, COVID and, uh, and other impacts and uh, the possibility of uh, mass migration, it seems like it would be a, a higher ranking issue in terms of something that they're going to have to deal with right away as an incoming team. How do you see the situation for an incoming Biden administration? Uh, so first, thanks for the invite. Um, it's good to be with all of you. Um, and I'm a little wary of Ricardo asking me questions. This is going to be his way of getting back at me for leaving him in the senior director job after. But uh, um, I think we got a kind of unique set of circumstances here. Um, as you just described, the, the regional context um, is one that's going to demand attention. Um, you also have an incoming president of the United States, perhaps kind of who's had the most working knowledge and most time spent uh, working on issues related to the region, um, certainly in quite some time, if not ever, for serving as president of the United States. I think a Biden administration, um, both because a the president-elect um, has the interest and knowledge and because the circumstances will dictate, um, will likely find themselves uh, dealing with these issues um, you know, right away uh, and won't have much time or luxury, the luxury of time to get settled in um, before they have to start making kind of real-time decisions vis-a-vis uh, -vis our neighbors. And again, I think the preparation that Joe Biden brings to the table um, is welcome news in that regard, um, because there won't be a whole lot of on-the-job learning um, about what the Americas means for the United States um, and how to go about kind of reconstructing a set of relationships that are left um, in, a, in a pretty tattered state. Let's get to some of the details on on some of the big themes that we're going to have to be uh, contending with. I know that uh, my colleagues have uh, some important issues that they're going to want to cover, but maybe we can start with migration and something that's obviously been important in the both domestic and the international context and something that affects so many of the countries across the region. How do you see that being prioritized in terms of not just the like the issues that have to be dealt with on day one, but in terms of the the relationships and the key phenomena they're going to have to deal with right away? So this is one of these things that's going to be present from the very beginning. And as a candidate, Joe Biden was pretty clear that the way the Trump administration has dealt with or attempted to deal with migration uh, is unacceptable. Um, it's unacceptable um, because it doesn't represent the values of the United States. It's unacceptable because it doesn't protect uh, the United States and it doesn't advance U.S. national interests. Um, and as a candidate, Joe Biden made very clear um, that he's going to undo a great deal of what Donald Trump put in place. Uh, because Donald Trump has effectively closed off the United States, um, closed off the United States kind of from the legitimate exercise of uh, legal rights of asylum, and has kind of you know extorted uh, our closest neighbor into serving as kind of a detention facility for the United States on 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 questions of migration. Um, all that's going to have to be addressed. And the dismantling of that, obviously, is going to take time. This is not one of those things that there's a magic wand out there that you make everything disappear right away. 
Um, but it is something that has to be worked on because even despite what Donald Trump has tried to do at the border, um, we already see resurgent numbers of migrants arriving at the United States border with Mexico. Um, October of this year <clears throat> saw the highest number of border apprehensions in an October since fiscal year 2005, um, nearly 70,000 border apprehensions. Um, so what Donald Trump had attempted to do, um, not surprisingly, isn't working over time in that migration numbers are already coming back. Um, and so there, it's a reality that will have to be dealt with um, from the very beginning of administration and worked through in such a way to promote orderly migration uh, and migration that is consistent with our values as a country um, and, quite frankly, with our laws. Um, in a way that the Trump administration's approach to migration has had not been the case. And of course, and look, and, and, and Joe Biden was a leader um, during your time uh, at the White House, um, rather than mine on this, uh, in terms of addressing the drivers of irregular migration from the countries of Northern Central America in particular. Um, money spent and effort spent um, in the countries of the so-called Northern Triangle has proven to be more effective, a more effective means um, of mitigating migration um, than kind of draconian efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and I think he's made very clear again as a candidate, the kind of laid out a $4 billion over four-year proposal um, to get back to the U.S. playing a role. I'm really playing a catalytic role um, in the kinds of change that I think we all want to see and that I think we all recognize is necessary um, to see in, uh, in the societies across Central America so they become sustainable societies, so they become places that people aren't forced to flee from. If I can just jump in really quickly here, though, Dan, you, know, you talked about the measures at the U.S. border and you talked about the measures in Central America itself. But of course, the, the key innovation of the Trump era was forcing Mexico or getting Mexico to, um, to collaborate and actively stopping migrants from moving through its territory. What happens to that? Because, I mean, it's so problematical in so many ways. And yet, you know, AMLO as president in Mexico has been a keen collaborator with Trump on that issue. Okay, you know better than I do that the U.S.-Mexico relationship is a complex one. Um, migration is obviously an element of the relationship um, and will be going forward, kind of inevitably so. Um, and the U.S. and Mexico have, have <clears throat> cooperated in very different ways over time on this issue. Um, as you rightly say, kind of, and as I mentioned earlier, kind of Trump extorted the Mexicans into doing what they've been doing over the course of the last few years. Um, and I think you also, but at the same time, I think Mexico has migration policies for reasons that are Mexican as well, um, and not solely a function of uh, U.S. demand. Um, and so, you know, you know, someone's going to have to sit down quite early um, with the government of Mexico from Team Biden and on behalf of the United States, um, and sort out exactly what the going forward relationship is going to look like, and what the going forward relationship is going to look like across a broad range of issues, including, but, you know, I think migration is going to be near the top, if not at the top of that kind of to-do list, um, in terms of figuring out how the U.S. and Mexico can work together to promote order, you know, in, in a humane way, um, to promote orderly migration uh, in the Americas. Um, and, and obviously, primarily that migration, which transits uh, Mexico, in, in, you know, looking for protection. But one of the interesting things that's happened over the course of the last few years, and I think kind of under-recognized, um, is that Mexico has actually become a, a country of um, 
a recipient country of migration in the sense that you have more migrants staying in Mexico and Mexico's protection mechanisms have become more robust um, in terms of um, humanitarian protection for those um, in need under international law. Um, and that's expanded quite significantly in recent years. Um, so, so look, this is going to be kind of a complex puzzle um, in, in reshaping and creating a, a modern U.S.-Mexico relationship um, where kind of humane and orderly migration, I think, is going to be part of that agenda. Dan, I'm curious to hear a bit of the trade panorama as you see it. You know, with Mexico, the, the Trump administration managed after lots of brinksmanship to renegotiate NAFTA. But otherwise, you know, any trade agreements with the region were quite mi- quite minor. I think it was largely a protectionist approach, as we saw elsewhere. You know, what do you foresee for a Biden hemispheric trade agenda? You know, maybe Trans-Pacific Partnership, maybe even beyond a sort of free trade area of the Americas minus a couple of key players, you know, Argentina, you could imagine would not be on board. I'm curious, you know, how aggressively, how ambitiously might uh, President-elect Biden see trade as a way to, you know, rebuild economies in, in Latin America? Yeah, look, I'm quite frankly, I'm not sure, but um, the, you know, I have long been a kind of FTA skeptic, um, not because I don't think it's a good idea, just I don't think you can actually get from here to there, um, given kind of the real players on these trade issues and and the notion the FTA, I think, was dead the day it was announced, um, because the United States and Brazil then, and kind of at all intervening points, um, have, I think, will have a hard time coming to uh, an agreement, given kind of just the realities of our two economies. Um, and, and I think the order of the day um, for a Biden administration um, is going to be dealing with the kind of the, the fallout from the pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's the public health piece, and we can talk about that. But there's obviously the economic wreckage that has happened in the region. Um, and I think there's, I think, quite frankly, everybody underappreciates uh, um, how bad things really are in the Americas right now, um, and the consequences that are going to flow from that. Um, and so, so part of the puzzle will be kind of what is the economic cooperation? What kind of what is it that the U.S. can usefully do to help economic recovery across the Americas? Um, I'm not sure that's kind of grandiose um, trade agreements. Um, grandiose trade agreements. Um, over t- you know structurally over time are beneficial, but that's not the kind of assistance and that's not the kind of kind of solution set that I think you need to deploy kind of right away. Um, and and it, which gets us kind of in a different complicated lane, uh, <laughs> which is you know right now the international financial institutions are deploying um, a fair amount of their balance sheets to support or at least to provide potential support for. Um, their fiscal support for countries across the hemisphere, and this is primarily the IMF right now. It's not, uh, it's not anybody else. Um, I think there's going to have to be a real push um, in the kind of financial mechanisms, um, and the U.S. can provide, I think, important leadership there um, to kind of help answer this the, the kind of the immediate crisis um, in a way that you know portends for inclusive growth in as many of the countries in the region as you can possibly. Um, get behind. Um, and, and so I, you know, all of this is just, you know, Dan Restrepo opining. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure that there's some significant trade agenda, um, as the, in the ways that we've thought about it and the ways we've talked about it, 
um, really since the initial summit of the Americas, right? Kind of, uh, I, I think perhaps we're in, we're, we're finally in a post of whatever that era was. Um, and we need to think about kind of what are those practical kind of almost emergency mechanisms that can be used um, to deal with this initial fallout from the pandemic. And then and once we kind of, once you do that and kind of reset the floor, if you will, how can, how can, what are the ways to build off of that? But, you know, I think that's two, three, four, maybe more years uh, away. Because again, I think the whole folks are in right now is a lot deeper than we all appreciate. Cindy Arnson? Uh, yeah. Um, Dan, if I could just follow up on that. Yeah. President Trump basically on his first day in office withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it seems that, um, you know, some things have moved forward in the absence of the United States, but that might be a key way that the United States could re-engage because, you know, economic recovery in the region will depend to a certain extent on, on reinvigorating exports. So that's part A of the question. And part B um, is that a lot of people have sort of pointed to the possibility for a green energy transition as part of the Biden administration's um, climate agenda uh, as a path to economic recovery. And I know that um, during the Obama administration, there was a very concerted effort to provide an alternative, particularly in Central America and the Caribbean, to Venezuela's um, oil aid scheme that at the time was known as Petrocaribe, which of course has pretty much uh, disappeared. Um, what, what were the results of those efforts to help um, energy importing small economy countries uh, to transition to other energy sources? And are there, is that a, a place where these efforts can start? Yeah, so I think, it, so when you kind of look back at the kind of energy and climate issues um, in the Obama years, um, you kind of went to the second step of them. So I'm going to go back to the first step first, um, which was using energy and climate kind of as a mechanism. Um, so we had to go to our first summit of the Americas. President Obama's first summit of the Americas was less than 100 days into his presidency. Um, and um, the mere act of showing up and the mere act of showing up in partnership was kind of the big deliverable, if you will. Um, and, and we kind of purposefully went without an agenda of saying, look, we've got the solutions to every problem and here it is, kind of whatever it is. And that's what the U.S. usually does at the Summit of the Americas, or up until that point is what the U.S. had been doing at Summit of the Americas. Uh, and, and President Obama was very clear that he, that's not how he wanted to show up. Um, but at the same time, kind of energy and climate issues were a place where we thought that in kind of in a, in a set of differentiated partnerships, um, there was a common set of challenges that the region faced from the climate, from what was then cli the climate change challenge. Not that we weren't quite at the point where we were calling it the climate crisis. Um, and there was different en energy dependencies and uh, that, that those provided kind of a non-ideological space, if you will, um, in which to engage with countries in the region. Um, during the second term, as you rightly point out, there was a real push, um, again, after my time. Um, to push kind of energy alternatives in, in the Caribbean in particular, Caribbean and Central America, but particularly the Caribbean, um, in part as a response to kind of the demise, quite frankly, of Petrocaribe, um, and kind of the, the, the kind of that, that, that house of cards was falling in on itself. Um, and you had these kind of diesel dependent countries. Um, there are also countries that are perhaps the most vulnerable set of the countries on the planet to the climate crisis. 
um, which seemed quite contradictory to a lot of folks. Um, but also, and who have, you know, clean energy alternatives present. One of the big challenges of the, of the Caribbean writ large is kind of the disparate nature, the scale. It's not a big, you know, even if you somehow aggregate the countries of the Caribbean, you, you still don't have a particularly large market. Um, and so some of the solution sets, um, I think worked on a localized basis. Um, some of the grander kind of plans, um, I think, kind of ran aground on the notion on that kind of lack of a significant enough market, um, because the United States has to approach these things from a market-based position, right? This is one of kind of the asymmetries of how the United States engages with the, with the region versus how some some other some of our competitors um, engage with the region. You know, there is no U.S. state-owned energy company. Um, that the president of the United States can deploy or can use um, to address an energy dependence question. Well, basically, we have to use market mechanisms um, and kind of connectivity with the with a U.S. private sector, um, and how you facilitate that kind of connectivity um, to drive kind of clean energy solutions. You know, again, I I think Joe, you know, Joe Biden was the push, you know, was the driving force behind that engagement in the Caribbean in the second term of of President Obama's presidency. Um, I think you can anticipate, um, particularly given the importance climate clearly is going to play in a Biden administration. Right, we we have a climate envoy who is a member now going to be a member of the cabinet and and at the principals committee. Um, in the National Security Council construct, and a member of the National Security Council, in former Secretary Kerry. Um, so a central organizing principle is going to be combating the climate crisis. The Americas is a is a is an area uh, of the world that has acute challenges, um, varied but acute uh, challenges, but also really interesting opportunities in renewable and sustainable energy solutions. So again, I think a little bit back to the, you know, my own back to the future, kind of projecting back to how we initially engaged in 2009 around energy and climate issues. I think that opportunity exists again, um, or it really, it never went away. Um, and seeing how you can deploy kind of new tools like the DFC, right? The Development Finance Corporation is a new and interesting entity um, with interesting possibilities um, to kind of allow the United States to be a little more directional um, on some of this stuff um, that's still kind of binding its way in the world. Uh, but I can I can see much more that approach um, than, again, necessarily kind of trade agreement approaches. Duncan Wood. Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, I have to say, you said at the beginning that you know, a lot of people don't know how bad things really are in Latin America. And, and one of the things that has truly depressed me this year is that despite the pandemic, the flow of drugs from the region to the United States has been really uninterrupted despite, right. despite some initial supply chain issues. And of course, the levels of violence, although they have dropped temporarily in some countries, really the rise in that like, over the long term is, is unabated as well. And I was wondering, you know, a Biden administration, what can it really do to address those issues? There's, there's the sort of traditional questions about uh, alleviating poverty. But I have to say that I, I think we need to have some some bigger and more modern ideas today. And I wonder if you have any insights in what might be coming down the track. Yeah, so let me toot my own horn here for a second. Um, so I just finished uh, service on the Western Hemisphere Drug Policy Commission, um, which was a congressionally created um, outgoing uh, House Foreign Affairs Chairman, uh, Elliot Angle, was kind of the driving force. And really, uh, Eric Jacobstein, um, his staffer on Western Hemisphere, was the driving force behind this. 
created in 2009, finally, after years of, uh, in 2016, sorry, after years of, of effort, um, the, got up and running um, here in the last 18 months. And along with a really interesting group of folks, uh, bipartisan folks, um, we just put out a report that kind of addresses exactly what you just said, Duncan, that it kind of states the obvious, like what the United States has been doing in the Western Hemisphere on counter-narcotics hasn't worked. Um, it has neither worked for the United States, given the levels of overdose deaths that we've seen in the United States, nor has it worked for the region, given the high levels, particularly of homicides, um, that kind of define broad swaths of the Americas, um, that is fueled in large measure by the transnational organizations um, that are trafficking drugs, among other things, in the Americas. So we got to think about this different. Um, and we got to think about this in a much more data-driven way, like kind of like brass tacks, like what works and what doesn't work. And let's stop doing that which does not work. Um, which doesn't sound like a particularly radical concept, but if you look back at what the U.S. has been doing on counter-narcotics for the last 40 years, it'd be quite the departure to stop doing what doesn't work. Um, and, 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 and also understanding that one size does not fit all here, right? The challenge is differentiated. The United States needs to sit down with its partners where it can, right? Where you have non-corrupt, uh, um, functioning entity, you know, governments with whom you can deal with. Um, to, to figure out kind of how, how does, how do you work the problem, let's say in Colombia? Um, and what does that solution set look like that builds out kind of sustainable, um, peace and security in Colombia? Um, that also has the benefit, um, of reducing illicit narcotic flows. But kind of, and again, what I just did there flips how the U.S. usually does counter narcotics on its head, right? It's, the U.S. usually promotes the policy saying kind of do what we think will stop illicit narcotics. Um, and we think that'll have some sort of beneficial, almost magical effect in your country. No, 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 no. Let's actually address the issues in these countries to the extent that we can with the theory that that will also inert to the benefit of the United States um, by reducing these illicit flows. Um, and again, the solutions that um, is different in different places. And it's also important to recognize that the solution set is different in different places. So what, what you do bilaterally with the Colombians is not what you do with the Central Americans and is not what you do with Mexico. Um, and, and again, that sounds really simple, um, but in my limited experience in government, um, it's a pretty radical idea um, to, to take a much more differentiated and a much more if our partners are more secure, if people kind of if street corners across the Americas are safer places, the United States will be a safer place. Um, and, and thinking about it that way leads you to a very different, I think, a very different set of, of policy solutions than what the United States has been doing for, the last, for basically my entire life. So the bad news is, and I'm sorry to report it, that we're out of time for this episode. It's gone way too quickly. The good news is that Dan will be back in our next episode. Dan, thank you for joining us this time around. We look forward to seeing you next time. Absolutely. Thank you. And now I also want to say thanks to our regulars, uh, Cindy, Benjamin, Duncan, Ricardo, who will also be back. And Chris Sands will be back on the job uh, from the Canada Institute next time around as well. In the meantime, if there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss or a guest you'd like to hear from, please send us email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for being here. 
You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.